are here with KK, the bestie, Miss King, if you nasty. Hey, what's up, what's up? Lo just had to explain the uh, the nasty reference to me because I'm out of touch with, well, Janet Jackson. with Janet Jackson, I guess. I'm a 90s baby, so I clearly missed that. <laughs> it's okay, though. I, I, I have heard the song before, but yeah. Good song, good song. Took me a minute to uh, get caught up. By the way, I'm looking and I see you have a dream catcher over by you. I love it. I just noticed. Okay. Um, New? No. Oh. That's the one I got from Hobby Lobby. I showed you a while ago. Was I with you? Or you sent me a picture? I showed you in person as I was hanging on my bedroom wall. Oh, yes. It was in your bedroom. Okay. I even let her sleep in my bed. Sorry. <laughs> it has my dreams captured in it. <laughs> Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, it's actually probably not a good thing. Um, no, I, because moving stuff is getting moved from room to room, box to box, house to house, whatever. Um, and I found it on the floor under there, and I'm like, well, what the hell? Like, hi, this is my stuff, people. So I hung it up. But um, I didn't think it was a bad idea to hang it there. And let me, let me let's tell our friends why. Okay, so like last week, you look at me like with all these. I don't know where this is going, but I'm um, excited. <laughs> I wish you guys could see the facial look she gives me sometimes. She usually catches up pretty quick. I'm very expressive. Um, so last week, um, when we had to do the Jenkins story, or I chose that one, um, when I was trying to find a story, I was kind of like, you know, spinning in circles, trying to figure out, like, oh my gosh, um, I don't have a story. I got to find one. And then. Um, but earlier that day, I had got a phone call, and it was like 734-666-72-whatever. Didn't think anything of it. I'm just like, whatever, sales call, hit end. Well, then I found the story. I did the research. I'm typing. I'm working at it. And at the very end of the story, the ding, ding, ding moment came when he carved 666 into his forehead. I'm like, oh, my God, that was a sign early in the day. It's all coming together, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Chris was finally like, full-blown cut off of her. Now I, now I know where this is going. So um, I tell her the story, and then the next day she calls me from work and says, oh, my God, I've had about, like, seven different paperwork coming in with different phone numbers, and they all end in 666. And then I was like, oh, my gosh. Well, then, like, 15, 20 minutes later, I'm sitting at a red light, and I look over at a school, and it said, uh, Stepanski, Waterford, enrollment 248666 and I'm like oh my god so I took a picture and I sent it to her and then um today um I sent her a picture I got another phone call of 734666 and I'm just like the 666s are like everywhere right now really scary honestly <laughs> yeah but I'm hoping that maybe it's the victims putting it out saying thank you for sharing our story yes I like that Please I like that viewpoint story. on it better like I, that's kind of where I'm hoping is like the victims are like thank you for you know telling the story and you know telling people he got justice for the horrible things he did to us yeah um so then I thought maybe it wouldn't be a bad idea just to hang it into the podcast room for a little bit. Couldn't hurt. Couldn't we hurt. don't sleep in here, but you know, it definitely couldn't hurt. You know, catch a catch some of the bad bad energies flowing through. <laughs> yeah. So that's where we are at with um, that. 
Yeah, lots of uh, lots of six references. Um, but yeah, I like your take on it that it's like a more of a positive than like the actual like scary six six six. Before we get into our story, um, we do have to congratulate someone. We have to congratulate. Let's see. Oh, Miss Miss Amy Peshwan. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. <laughs> from Virginia. Hey girl, congrats. Hey, hey girl, hey. Um, and she answered correctly with um what was the connection in the hills have eyes between Papa Jupiter and Ruby? And the correct answer was they are father and daughter. Mm. So congratulations, bragging rights to you. Good job, good job. Keep it up. So um, we will have another question at the end of the show. Yeah, we put it at the end, so you got to stay and listen to the whole damn thing before you can ask <laughs> the questions. Exactly. And uh, yeah, don't want to miss that, so then you can get your shout out and get your bragging rights also. So, But we will put it in the beginning of the show. Don't forget to... Um, start saving your dollars and sending them in for a Mother's Day basket. There will be Mother's Day movies. I got a couple of them in mind. And a bottle of wine. Maybe we'll put in like a little bath salt or something. We'll make a Mother's Day. Yes. Something for the mothers. So mother, motherfuckers, mother babies, <laughs> mothers. All so, the mothers. All the mothers out all there. All the mothers. <laughs> um, but we are going to give our shout out to Dax. Hey, Dax. Hey, Dax. Um, and then also, hey, Kay, what are we drinking tonight? Sorry, I was moving my cell phone. It was going off. Um, we are drinking, and it's really good, by the way, Farm Fresh Raspberry Bubbly Moscato. Delish. Oh, the bubbles get you. I know. They really do. They, they actually get my stomach, to be honest. If I have, like, more than one, one glass, my stomach is, like... Dang, girl. <laughs> oh, and my husband fed her homemade bean soup. Oh, gosh. Good thing I'm single. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's got to deal with that later. Uh, my poor child tomorrow when she goes to school. Oh, yeah. Not fun. <laughs> so, Crystal is going to take lead today. What do you got for us? We are going to be talking about Robert Durst. Um, Not to be confused with Fred. Different guy, different guy. <laughs> Very different. <laughs> we can come back to him another time. <laughs> Is this all about the he said, she said bullshit? Um, maybe a little. <laughs> kind of, I guess maybe could work in there. You gotta have faith? You really, I mean, the people <laughs> in his life definitely gotta have some faith. <laughs> okay, but still not Fred. <laughs> no, very different. Okay. Sadly, unfortunately. Um, yeah, I don't know if you've heard of Robert Durst at all. Um, I'll get into some of like a movie and stuff that was made on him that I didn't even know was about him. Um, But yeah, he's a little bit well known, but I didn't know too much until I kind of looked into it more. So Robert was the oldest of four children and he was born in Manhattan on April 12th, 1943. So we're taking it back. Okay. (laughs) Um, He grew up in Scarsdale, New York, and he was the son of real estate magnate Seymour Durst and his wife, Bernice Kirstein. Um, His siblings were Douglas, Tommy, and Wendy Durst. Um, And his 
grandfather on his dad's side was named Joseph, and he was a tailor, um, and he immigrated from Austria-Hungary in 1902 and eventually became a successful real estate manager and developer, and he actually founded the Durst organization in 1927. So this family was, like, rich. Like, they were rich, rich. They owned a ton of real estate in New York. Um, they were pretty well-known back in the day. Um, yeah, they they had lots of money. <laughs> I feel like they even had the classy names, Wendy, Tommy. Yeah. Right, yeah, those like, are. Very all-American, well-established names. Yes, very, I, I, I agree, actually. <laughs> Very polished. Yes, very polished. I feel like his uh, his grandfather probably planned that all out. <laughs> Unlike uh, Jenkins, Jenkins yeah. grandfather, he had he planned stuff out too. Yeah, very different, very different family plans. I mean, you know, in the end, they kind of maybe become a little bit similar, but <laughs> carried out in a very different way. <laughs> um, when Robert was seven, his mother actually sadly committed suicide by jumping from the roof of the family's home in Scarsdale. Um, he later claimed that moments before his death, his father walked him to a window from which he could see her standing on the roof, which is super dark. Um, I guess it's said that, like, his dad thought, his dad claimed, supposedly, that he let him watch her do that because he thought that if she saw him watching that she wouldn't jump. Like, it would stop her from jumping. Okay. But, I mean, honestly, it, it obviously traumatized Robert. Maybe a gamble he shouldn't have taken. Yeah, I feel like that was probably not a good risk to take or to put your, like, young son in the middle of. Um, In a March 2015 New York Times interview, though, his brother Douglas actually denied that Robert witnessed her death. So there was kind of a lot of back and forth between them saying, you know, did he see it? Did he not? Um, Robert has a very detailed description of what he saw. I don't know if he's just a dark person and came up with that description or if he like really did actually see it. Um, but as children, Robert and Douglas kind of underwent counseling for a lot of sibling rivalry between each other. Um, and a psychiatrist report that was done in 1953 on 10-year-old Robert mentioned that he had personality decomposition and possibly even schizophrenia. So I'm not really sure what the exact truth is. Clearly he had some mental stuff going on. Um, but there was a lot of rival rivalry between Robert and Douglas, so I'm not really sure, you know, who's telling the truth and what's going on there. But, um... Robert, when he got older, he attended Scarsdale High School, and classmates there described him kind of just as a loner. He earned his bachelor's degree in economics in 1965 from Ley University, um, where he was a member of the varsity lacrosse team and the business manager of the student newspaper, The Brown and White. He enrolled in a doctoral program at the University of California, Los Angeles, so UCLA, later that year, where he met Susan Berman, um, but eventually withdrew from the school and returned to New York in 1969. So Robert, so like I said, this whole family business in the real estate game, you know, they were super rich. It was all about the family working together and like kind of thriving off of each other in that way. But Robert really had no interest in working for his father at the Durst organization. Um, 
Instead, he had, you know, plans of his own and he had a dream of opening a small health food store, which he actually ended up doing. Um, and it was called All Good Things. And he opened it in Vermont in the early 1970s. So he kind of broke away from the family, um, you know, doing his own thing, what made him happy and all of that. Um, however, just a few years later in 1973, Robert closed All Good Things when his father convinced him to return to New York and the Durst organization. Um, however, so he, he went back, but his inappropriate conduct, his father Seymour broke tradition and appointed Durst's brother Douglas, the one he has all the rivalry with, to take over the organization instead of Robert. Um, so yeah, that kind of really pissed Robert off because, you know, like, oh, hey, I'm coming back to work for you. I don't even really want to do this, but I'm doing it for you. But he was involved in a lot of like shady um, money trading. He was like the real estate that he was a part of, like they had a lot of like iffy businesses that he was working with. So that's kind of why when that knowledge came out to the public, his dad gave his younger brother the, the boost instead of Robert. <laughs> And then why not just let him do his own dang thing? I know. I feel like sometimes, I mean, I have no idea because I don't come from like a rich family with like a giant business, but I feel like from what I can tell, it seems like a lot of times when it's like a family business that's super rich and successful, there's like such a huge pressure on the kids to like, well, well, duh, you're going to be a part of this. Like, why would you not be a part of this, you know? Carry my legacy out. Right, you know? yeah. But, I mean, if he was going to have his other brother run the show and do this and do that, I don't know, I feel like it was almost like false pretenses to get him to come back. Right, yeah, then it's like, so, what's the point? Honestly? I mean, I don't know where he goes from here, and I'm sure it wasn't okay. Um, you're going to tell us. Yeah. <laughs> but I feel like he should have just let him do his own business thing and his whole good life. Right, exactly. I think his dad made him um, feel guilty, too, which we'll get into with um, the woman that he was. I think he was just dating her at this time. Or maybe they had gotten married at that point when they had the health food store. His dad kind of was, like, pressuring him to, like, oh, you know, you want to give her the life that she deserves and all this stuff. When I'm sure she was probably just as happy as him owning that little store, like, in Vermont. But I don't know if he just felt the family the dad's wrath to like come back and be more so robert obviously he felt entitled to inherit the company uh despite you know him not even wanting having anything to do with it he felt like well i'm the oldest son this is how it's traditionally supposed to be um and he blamed his brother douglas for stealing what he believed was owed to him and that definitely caused even more of a rift between Robert and the rest of the Durst family and Robert actually eventually sued for his share of the entire family fortune and was bought out of the family trust for 65 million dollars in 2006 so pretty pretty nice payout I'd say oh shit I feel like that's like hashtag worth it uh yeah 65 mil and at that point in 2006, he was already, like, up there in age, you know, like. <laughs> Peace, bro, I'm out. Right? Exactly. <laughs> so we're kind of going to go on to um, this woman I was talking about a minute ago in his life. Um, her name was Kathleen. 
So Robert met her in the fall of 1971. She was a dental hygienist. And after two dates, he invited Kathleen to share his home in Vermont where he had opened the health food store um, and she had moved there in January of 1972. However, Robert's father, you know, he pressured him again to work there and go back to the organization. So the couple returned to Manhattan where they got married on April 12, 1973, which was Robert's 30th birthday. Um, at the time... Um, McCormick, you know, they had a really good relationship, so it seemed on the outside. There were some things here and there that kind of popped up, but she eventually went missing, and nobody really blamed Robert. Um, he was not really a main suspect, which is odd for, you know, the husband to not be the main suspect in a missing person's case for the wife. You're always a suspect. I know. I don't know if it's because he was, like, a part of this elite family that like you know they kind of like didn't point the fingers you know because Kennedy's. nobody wanted basically you know like to keep to save everybody else's um save everybody else's ass but at the time of her disappearance Kathleen was a student in her fourth and final year at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx um she was studying to be a pediatrician and she was only a few months short of earning her degree. So she was pretty much right there. And then, bam, she goes missing. Um, Kathleen was last seen by someone other than Robert on the evening of January 31st, 1982, when she appeared unexpectedly at a dinner party thrown by her friend Gilbert Nanjay um, in Newtown, Connecticut. Nanjame noticed that McCormick was upset and was wearing red sweatpants, which I, her friend found odd because I guess Kathleen never dressed so casually in public. She, like, really dressed up when she would go out. Um, and Kathleen later left for her house with Robert in South Salem, New York, after a phone call that she got from Robert. So she she was not in good spirits when she was at that party, and she got this call from Robert and left, and that was the last time any of her friends saw her. So although the couple were known to have argued and fought on that evening, Robert maintained that he placed his wife on a commuter train to New York City at Katona Station, had a drink with the neighbor, and spoke to his wife at their Manhattan apartment by telephone later that evening. Robert later admitted he just went home and went to bed. Um, he said, that's what I had told police. Um, which he later was saying in a documentary of the filmmakers, The Jinx. He says, I was hoping that would just make everything go away. And then, you know, keep it short and sweet background story or whatever for himself. So after Kathleen had left her friend's house, who was having that party, the two women were supposed to meet at a pub called the Lions Gate in Manhattan. And when Kathleen failed to show up, her friend became concerned and repeatedly called the police for several days. Later that week, Robert filed a missing, missing persons report as well. Both a doorman and the building superintendent at the couple's apartment on Riverside Drive claimed to have seen Kathleen there on February 1st, um, the day after she was last apparently seen. But the doorman also said that he had seen her only from behind 
and from half a block away and could not be certain that it was her. So I was kind of wishy-washy, you know, if anybody actually did see her after she supposedly disappeared. Um, only three weeks after Roberts reported Kathleen missing, the superintendent at the Riverside Drive apartment found her possessions in the building's trash compactor. Kathleen had been treated at a Bronx hospital for facial bruises three weeks before her disappearance. She told a friend that Robert beat her but did not press charges over the incident. Kathleen asked Robert for a $250,000 divorce settlement. Instead, Robert canceled his wife's credit card, removed her name from a joint bank account, and refused to pay her medical school tuition. And when Kathleen disappeared, Robert had been dating Prudence Farrow for three years and was living in a separate apartment. And Robert initially offered $100,000 for his wife's return, then reduced the reward to $15,000. So what a drop. <laughs> what a big drop. Um, when one of Kathleen's friends and her sister found out that she had been reported missing, they broke into her cottage hoping to find her. Instead, they found the cottage ransacked, Kathleen's mail left unopened, and her belongings all in the trash. Which that's like so crappy to me that, you know, she's asking him for this divorce, $250,000, which to him probably is not that much money at all. He's got $65 million. Right. Well, that was after, but still, like, he was part of that business, so he had to have had so much money. Oh, yeah. And, like, you know, he was dating this other woman, so it's like, just give her the divorce. But no, he was like, no, I'm, t I'm cutting off your credit card. I'm not giving you any money for the divorce. I'm not paying for your school. Like, he was, like, bitter. <laughs> bitter, bitter about it. Sorry, I was sitting in, like, a position for so long, and my leg was, like, Falling asleep. <laughs> starting to hurt, and, um, there's just a lot of situational struggling going on. I I'm saw you now. trying to get that fly or something. It's a mosquito. Mosquito. Oh. And I've been trying to do it very quietly as possible. I haven't heard you. I just saw you. I, I watched for a second, I'm like, oh, I was, like, shit. trying to do the Miyagi thing, like, <laughs> without making any noise. It was, like, entertaining for me to watch, honestly. Um, <laughs> but yeah, after Kathleen's disappearance, the New York police department said that Robert had claimed to have last spoken to her when she called him at the Riverside Drive apartment. He claimed that the last time he had seen her was at Katona Station, where she was planning to board a 915 train to Manhattan. And he also said that on February 4th, the supervisor at her medical school called him and said that she had called in sick on February 1st and was absent from class for the entire week. Um, if it was actually Kathleen who made the call, it's not really certain. Um, and the day after he received the call from her medical school, he reported her as missing. So the police kind of found a lot of inconsistencies and weird things. Like, in my mind, he called the school and pretended to be her and was like, I'm going to be sick, you know? Or paid some other female to be Right. Her. Yeah, exactly. Um, because, yeah, if they called him and said that she called in sick, why would he call the police the next day? You know, just too weird. So, um, eight years after her disappearance, Robert then divorced her. He waited eight years after she disappeared. Um, and he claimed spousal abandonment. 
Like she just ran away or something and like never returned, which was his story, you know, that he put her on a train and like she never came back. Um, and yeah, her body was never found. Um, in 2016, the McCormick family asked to have Kathleen declared legally dead and request that granted the following year. Kathleen's mother, Anne, attempted to sue Robert for a hundred thousand, or excuse me, hundred million dollars, alleging that he killed Kathleen and deprived them of the right to bury her. Kathleen's parents are now deceased. Um, her younger sister, Mary, also believes that Robert murdered her. The New York State Police quietly reopened the criminal investigation into the disappearance in 1999, searching Robert's former South Salem residence for the first time, which is so crazy to me that that was the first time they waited years, almost like 20 years after the initial investigation to, to search his home. Like, really? Well, I mean, when you got money, you can pay off, you know. It's so... Oh, buy time. Right. That boils my blood. So the investigation became public in November of the year 2000, um, but in August of 2019, a wrongful death lawsuit against Robert filed by another of Kathleen's sister, Carol, was dismissed on the grounds that she had waited too long to file the suit, which that's annoying. They're like, oh, you waited too long, so it doesn't count. You waited too long to find her body, so it does count. <laughs> yeah, like, why are you searching now? Like, I, so annoying. So, in 2018, the Court of Appeals had already revised the exact date of Kathleen's death to match the day she actually disappeared in 1982. Um, on May 17th, 2021, during Robert's trial, um, which we'll get into when we fast forward, um... District Attorney Mimi Roca announced that Kathleen's disappearance had been reclassified as a murder and would be reinvestigated. So to fast forward a little bit, Robert, and just kind of close out Kathleen's part of the story, Robert was officially charged October 22nd, 2021 in her death. Okay, so she went missing in like the 80s. And he didn't get charged till 2021. So he pretty much had a full life. Yes. You know. He was an old man. Like, he literally had a full life before he got caught. Um, so next, we have the murder of Susan Berman. So Susan Berman, who was a longtime friend of Robert's, she had facilitated his public alibi after Kathleen's disappearance. Um, she was the daughter of David Berman. He was, I guess, this big gangster, well-known well gangster who lived uh, in the 1940s and operated the Flamingo Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas, if anybody is familiar with that. But um, she helped him, she helped him cover up Kathleen's murder, basically. So on December 24th, 2000, she, uh, Susan was found murdered execution style in her home in Benedict Canyon, Los Angeles, California, after her neighbors called the police to report that her door was open and one of her fox terriers were loose. Yeah, I did not think you were going that way with it. What'd you think? I thought she was going to be charged too. Oh, well, she would have eventually, but if she didn't die. They came and got her too. No, I mean, they should have, but he got her first. Um, 
A few days later, a letter addressed to the Beverly Hills Police Department, postmarked December 23rd, contained Susan's address and the word cadaver on the envelope. Um, Beverly was misspelled and, like, it was spelled B-E-V-E-R-L-E-Y instead of B-E-V-E-R-L-Y, kind of like, apparently, to do a clue, Robert was known to have been in Northern California days before Berman was killed and to have flown from San Francisco to New York the night before her body was discovered. Um, Susan had also recently received $50,000 from Robert in two payments. Kind of like, in my mind, that's like his payoff to her, you know, for doing his dirty work. Um, Although Robert confirmed to the LAPD that he had sent Berman $25,000 and faxed investigators a copy of her 1982 deposition regarding his missing wife. He declined to be further questioned about the murder. Um, Right, exactly. So Robert stated in a 2005 deposition that Susan called him shortly before her death to say that the LAPD wanted to talk to her about Kathleen's disappearance Um, And a study of case notes by The Guardian cast doubt on whether the LAPD actually made that call or whether um, the then Westchester County District Attorney Janine Pirro had scheduled an interview with Susan at all. So on October 31st, after being tipped off by his sister, Wendy, that the Kathleen investigation had been reopened, Robert went into hiding and moved to Gabelson, Texas, and he disguised himself as a mute woman to avoid police inquiries. Um, And Susan biographer Kathy Scott, uh, she's kind of asserted that Robert killed her because she she knew too much about his wife's disappearance, which I agree. You know, he was in the area at the time that she got murdered. She was the one that helped him. The case had just reopened. Like, it's just too, it's just too weird of timing. You know what I mean? Like, he had to have been the one to kill her. Lo got the bug, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> right, as, right as I was talking, I'm like, oh, she got it. <laughs> I tried to do it very quietly. No, you did. It was just, I, I had to say it because we I'm mentioned sorry. it. I was listening and staying focused, but it was just driving me crazy. Oh, no, I, it was entertaining for me. I don't even know what came out of my mouth. I was talking, but I was really watching you get that bug. <laughs> you started talking about the movie It. Really yeah. Around, my mind went off track for a minute. You started talking about the movie The Fly. You're right. <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> um. So, the, we're now moving on. So, that was Susan's killing. Now we're moving on to the killing and dismemberment of Morris Black. So on October 9th, 2001, Robert was arrested in Gabelston shortly after body parts belonging to his elderly neighbor, Morris Black, were found floating in the Gabelston Bay. He was released on $250,000 bail, missed a court hearing on October 16th, and a warrant was issued for his arrest on a charge of bail jumping. Um, And on on November 30th, he was caught inside a Wegmans supermarket in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, um, after trying to shoplift Band-Aids and a newspaper and a chicken salad sandwich, Um, although he had $500 cash in his pocket. I just feel like that's such a weird combination of events. I hope he tells the story a little bit better on prison. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I'm like, he's so rich, but he's stealing Band-Aids and a 
what, a chicken salad sandwich. And he had $500 in his pocket that he could have, you know, went towards that stuff. The only thing I can think of is he wanted to not be noticed. I guess, but then they just like, backfired. You know, yeah, he came in about Band-Aids, you know, like. Yeah. So funny. I don't know. That that probably is just probably one of my favorite parts of this entire story because it's just like, what? <laughs> uh, also, the fact that he, when he moved to Texas, that he literally dressed up as a woman every day. He was not. Um, trans? Trans. I'm so sorry. I was trying to think of the full word. Um, but he was just dressing up as a woman to, like, disguise himself. And he was also, like, portraying himself to be a mute. Thinking, you know, nobody will catch me, whatever. Um, but, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and a police search of his rental car yielded $37,000 in cash, two guns, marijuana, his neighbor Morris Black's driver's license, and directions to um, Gilbert Nanjay, which was Kathleen's friend that we talked about earlier in Connecticut, which is like, what are you planning to do at her address, Mister Mister Robert, sir? Um, but probably nothing good. Right, probably nothing good. Um, Robert also used his time on the run to stalk his brother Douglas, and I guess he visited the driveway of his home of Catanoa, New York, while he was like armed. Um, I don't know if he was debating on whether, you know, to go after his brother or not. Um, but, yeah, Robert employed defense attorney John Waldron after he was held on charges in Pennsylvania. And he was eventually extradited to Texas for trial. So his trial finally started in 2003, which, again, it's just so late. It's like so delayed for all these murders that he was a part of. Um, so he was tried for the murder of Morris Black, um, and on the death of Black, the prosecution presented the jury with only a premeditated first-degree murder and no lesser murder or manslaughter charges. Um, he was claiming self-defense, so his defense attorney, DeGuarin, conducted two mock trials in preparation for the case, and Robert's defense team found communicating with him difficult and ended up hiring a psychiatrist um, named Milton Ulster to investigate. Um, Ulster spent over 70 hours examining Robert and diagnosed him with Asperger's syndrome, saying his whole life's history is so compatible with the diagnosis of Asperger's disorder. His defense team argued at trial that the diagnosis explained his behavior. I don't know too much about Asperger's. Um, but he was a functioning human being, and I don't think you can blame someone murdering three people for Asperger's. Lots of people have Asperger's, and they don't go around murdering people. You're sorry. Yeah. <laughs> but that was his defense, so. Um, and, his, he, and the self-defense thing, Robert claimed that Morris Black was a cranky and confrontational loner. Uh, he grabbed his .22 caliber target pistol from its hiding place and threatened him with it. During the struggle for the pistol, the pistol discharged, shooting Morris in the face. Now, during cross-examination, Robert admitted to using a parking knife, two saws, and an axe to dismember Black's body before bagging and dumping his remains in Gabbleston Bay. 
Um, I think you made a pairing there. Pairing, what'd I say? Parking. <laughs> I don't know why I said parking. <laughs> you know, those parking knives. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, why did I say parking? <laughs> she can't read her own handwriting. Yeah. <laughs> My aerial handwriting font. <laughs> oh, guys. <laughs> So he used his parking knife, you know, <laughs> but um, <laughs> Morris's head was never recovered. It was never found. So prosecutors were unable to present sufficient forensic evidence to dispute Robert's account of the struggle. So that kind of played in his favor because they couldn't really tell for sure. Um, and as a result of lack of forensics, listen to this, the jury acquitted Durst of the murder on November 11th, 2003. So he was just, he's just good to go, you know? Like, he was just good to go. But in 2004, he pleaded guilty to two counts of bail jumping and one count of evidence tampering um, for his dismemberment of Morris's body. Um, And as part of his plea bargain, he received a sentence of five years and was given credit for time served, requiring him to serve three years in prison. And he was paroled in 2005. So the rules of his release required him to stay near his home. Uh, Permission was required to travel. And that December, Robert made an unauthorized trip to the boarding house where Morris had been killed and to a nearby shopping mall. Really? Is that worth it? Um, At the mall, he ran into the former Galveston trial judge, Susan Crisp who had presided over his trial, and due to the incident, the Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles determined that Robert had violated the terms of his parole and put him back in jail. What a bummer. I mean, I mean, I'm glad he got caught, but it's just like, he sneaks out to a mall and he runs into the freaking judge. (laughs) Like, what are the chances of that? We haven't even got to the dumb criminals yet. Right. (laughs) Then this is the thing, like, you know, these people... Literally got away with murder. Like, literally. Literally. Yeah. And they're too dumb to not screw it up. Like, dude, move if you can. I guess it depends on what your parole is. But if not, like... Don't go to the mall, you know? Don't leave your house. Yeah. Like, I realize it's, you know, not, like, now where everything can be delivered and you can just binge Netflix all day. Right. But, I mean, find something to keep yourself occupied. Yeah. And he had money. Like, I feel like he could hire someone to do, like, grocery shopping and stuff like that for him. You know, he wasn't, like, poor or anything. But I just, it's so funny that he ran into the judge. Like, what are the odds? Um, So yeah, Right? Honestly, that is true. It was Kathleen and Susan, man. (laughs) Um, And Morris, all three of them. But. So, yeah, he went back to jail, but then he was released again from custody in 2006. So he was only in there for, like, what, like, not even three years. Um, So this guy was just literally getting away with, getting away with it all, getting away with murder. Um, Asked in March 2015 whether she believed Robert murdered Morris. The judge, Chris, commented, you could see that this person knew what they were doing and that it was not a first time. The body was cut perfectly like a surgeon who knew how to use this tool on this bone and a certain kind of tool on the muscle. It looked like a not first time job, and that was pretty scary. So, yeah, she 
pretty much was like, mm, yeah, he knew what he was doing. So the events surrounding Robert Durst inspired the 2010 film All Good Things, um, which the title was in reference to his, you know, his health food store that he had in the 70s. Um, and David Marks was his name. So Robert Durst, they changed his name to David Marks in the movie. Um, and he was portrayed by Ryan Gosling and his wife, Kathy, was portrayed by Kirsten Dunst. Um, which I saw that movie and I didn't, because the name was different. I just didn't know. Um, so kind of interesting. All the, um, pretty much all the events are the same. Um, they just changed the names and like a little tiny detail here and there. But I have to go back and watch it. Yeah. I don't remember seeing this one. It was good. Um, I think it was pretty big. I'm pretty sure it's on Hulu, actually. Um, well, I have all the things. Yeah. Little by little, I sent up for them all. Yeah, exactly. It's on one of them, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, it was good, and, um, shortly after its theatrical release, Robert saw the movie, and he contacted the director, Andrew Jarecki, expressing his admiration for the film, which is so crazy to me, like, the film portrays him as a murderer, and he contacted the director being like, oh my god, I loved this, thank you, you know, that's when it's like, okay, you're obviously a murderer, because you're, like, proud, it's like, that was like a trophy for him or something. Those are just the people are. Right. So after he talked to the director, it evolved into discussions between between the two of them being included on the DVD video release um, and eventually resulting in the director co-writing, co-producing, directing, and appearing in the 2015 HBO six-part documentary series about Durst titled The Jinx. Um, I don't have HBO. I've never seen this, but um, yeah, pretty crazy stuff because the movie came out in 2010. So the way that it ended was he's free to go. Um, you know, he never got caught. Kathleen's body was never found. Like basically, you know, he just is, he got away with murder is how so the movie ended. She just gave like, all the spoilers. Oh, sorry. Well, I mean, I got, yeah, I kind of said it in the story too. <laughs> I guess I won't go back and watch yeah, it. Yeah, I ruined it. You know me, I ruin things. <laughs> I always ruin the stories. Um, <laughs> but, so, when that movie ended, that's kind of where it was at in real life. But then this 2015 HBO thing came out, uh, The Jinx. Um, the full title was The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst. Um, and it describes circumstantial evidence linking Robert to the murder of Susan, who... Obviously, she was the one who had knowledge of Kathleen's disappearance. Um, and the documentary detailed the disappearance of Kathleen, Susan, and Morris Black. So all three of them. And against the advice of his lawyers and his then-wife, Deborah Lee Sheraton, Robert gave multiple interviews and allowed unrestricted access to his personal records to the filmmakers. So the FBI got involved, got this information, and ended up arresting Robert in New Orleans on the same day as the final episode was broadcast. So this motherfucker sold himself out. He sold himself out because he was, like, excited that they were, like, talking about it. So he did a tell-all and really told all. Yeah. I think he was, like, in my mind, I think he's, like, old and is just, like, you know, let me just air this all out here. Like, he was proud of it. 
and very narcissistic. Yes, and mm-hmm. probably just you know, part of him felt like he was untouchable. Like right. I always get out. I always come back. I... Right. He probably just figured, you know, I'm not really going to get in trouble for this. And, like, he knew better because, obviously, his wife and his lawyers were like, don't do this. Are you crazy? So that just, yeah, goes to show he was definitely very narcissistic. <laughs> um, the documentary ends, I guess, with Robert moving into a bathroom where his microphone records him seemingly saying to himself, there it is. You're caught. You're right, of course, but you can't imagine. Arrest him. I don't know what's in the house. Oh, I want this. What a disaster. He was right. I was wrong. And the burping. I don't really know. This was, and I'm having difficulty with the question, what the hell did I do? Killed them all, of course. So basically, yeah, he he was like going off on a weird tangent. We'll have to watch it. I know. And literally uh, confessed. Um, so, I mean, it did later become known in 2019 that the filmmakers kind of altered the sequence of his comments, but regardless, he said killed them all, of course, so can't really, of course. can't really do much to alter that. <laughs> so the Associated Press reported that a March 1999 letter from Robert to Susan discovered by her stepson and turned over to the filmmakers during their research provided key new evidence leading to the film of murder charges against Robert. And um, during the production of The Jinx, um, Andrew Jarecki, Mark Smerling, and Zach Stewart-Pontier, who were all producers, realized the information and interviews with Robert uncovered potential criminal evidence. And they obviously felt, you know, obligated to deliver it to the L.A. District Attorney's Office, you know, like, this guy's kind of got to get caught because he's just been, like, getting away with everything for so long. Um, And so the new information led to Robert's indictment for the first-degree murder of Susan Furman. So um, on December 16th, 2015, prosecutors and defense attorneys Um, said in a joint motion that scheduling conflicts ruled out all dates before a January 11th trial and ultimately got rescheduled for 2016 and Durst changed his plea guilty to the federal gun charge and received an 85-month prison sentence. So that was for Susan, 85 months for murdering her. But she'll get out in good behavior in, you know, 42 days. Exactly. Um, so then he had a trial in 2020 and it was his trial concerning the Berman killing, um, kind of continuing on to that. Um, and the pre-trial hearings included extensive testimony from a number of older witnesses who potentially would not be available when the trial itself began. And in October 2018, L.A. County Supervisor Judge Mark Windham ruled that enough evidence existed to try Robert for the murder of Susan and that he would be arraigned November 8th, 2018, during his court appearance the following day. He pleaded not guilty, even though they had all this new evidence against him. Like, really, dude, he's just like, you know, I think that I'm going to get away with it. So why not? On May 13, 2021, Robert's 
lawyers filed a motion with the court saying he had developed bladder cancer and moved that the court postpone the trial indefinitely and to release him on bail to receive medical treatment that was currently being provided. The motion, however, was denied by the court and the trial resumed on May 17th, which I agree with. Like, this has been delayed, like, long enough. Uh, don't need to keep delaying. It's been, like, what, over over 40 years? Like, he needs to finally be, uh, be caught. So on June 10th, 2021, Robert was hospitalized after being found down and not in his wheelchair. Um, the judge sent the jury home with plans to resume on June 14th, and Lewin expressed suspicion that the defendant, so Robert, was faking a medical crisis to force a mistrial because he was on record in his calls from county jail saying he intended to fake dementia or seek a mistrial due to COVID. So he had a plan, you know. He's like, I'm not getting caught. This is what I'm going to do to delay it. He says, I have no idea whether this is legitimate or not, but obviously given his history, it's certainly suspect as to what his actual condition is, Lewin said, and noting that Robert's lawyers had twice sought mistrials before during the previous day's testimony. Um, So yeah, fishy fishy that he, uh, you know, just all of a sudden got sick and fell out of his wheelchair after they already were trying to get mistrials before. Um... The prosecutor added, it's very clear the defense and the defendant want this trial to go away. Jail doctors determined Robert was able to appear in court after the emergency hospitalization, um, which I guess it was for a urinary tract infection and sepsis, um, and Judge Wyndham reconvened the trial on June 14th. Robert was unable to dress himself and was in court in his wheelchair, jail uniform, and catheter bag and he was covered in a large blanket. On October 14, 2021, Robert was sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole for Susan's murder. The request from Robert for a new trial was denied by the court in view of the abundance of evidence of Robert's guilt. However, following the murder conviction, Robert's legal team immediately filed appeals in the California legal system. Of course they did. (laughs) Yeah, and as such, uh, his appeals may be dismissed by the California Court of Appeals and the murder conviction set aside as his death prevented the appeals from being heard. So he literally, he like barely spent any time in any prison at all for any of these murders. He gets me really mad. Yeah, he was, like, really sneaky, you know, got away with it. As Heather Ashley would say, I'm big mad. Yeah, (laughs) big, big mad over here. Like, his money and his, like, status and privilege really, really set him up to uh, succeed in this, sadly. Um, yeah, there's a couple other cases that were possibly linked to him, um, One being days after Susan's murder, police were reportedly examining connections between Robert and the disappearance of 18-year-old Lynn Schultz from Middlebury, Vermont, and 16-year-old Karen Mitchell from Eureka, California. Investigators were also considering a possible connection between Robert and the disappearance of 18-year-old Kristen Modafferi, who was last seen in San Francisco in 1997. Um... 
yeah, there's more details on that, those as well. Those aren't confirmed to be, you know, his in connection with him, but police definitely investigated that. And I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. This guy is obviously, you know, a serial killer. So wouldn't be shocked if he had more that people just didn't know about. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, so Robert Durst, sneaky little, sneaky bastard. little bastard. <laughs> I was going to say weasel to be nice, but yeah. <laughs> but really... <laughs> Horrible, horrible. And it's so sad because so many people probably who are in his, like, status of life have probably gotten away with so many things just like that and we'll never know or, like, you know, it'll take years and years before it comes to light just because of their status and their wealth and all of that. So, ugh, scary, honestly. But I just, I don't know. <laughs> Speechless. Yes, like, it just... It irks me because these people lost their lives and so much bullshit and he's, you know, now what, like 150 getting arrested. He's going to die in the next, you know, 10 years anyway. He's had his whole life to live. Mm Mm-hmm. I know. I mean, I want to be like, what's the point of arresting him now? But I know there's still a point, you know. Right. But at the same time, you're just kind of like. It's like it's been so freaking long and he's going to die. Like. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's wheelchaired. He's. I can't, yeah, all that. Um, all the things that Right. Are... Especially for Kathleen. I mean, I don't, obviously, I he shouldn't have killed anybody. The movie, from what I remember, um, Morris Black, his neighbor, the movie kind of made it seem like they were friends. And the movie alleged that Morris Black was the one who killed um, Susan. So, like, that he kind of, like, let him stay in his apartment um, if he were to go, like, do him the favor of killing Susan. So I don't necessarily know that Morris Black was that great of a person. And, you know, Susan supposedly covered up parts of Kathleen's murder. So really, Kathleen, I just feel like the worst for because she was just trying to become a pediatrician. She married this guy that she thought was, like, normal and all this stuff. And he he turned violent and angry and she tried to divorce him and you know that's what she got from that so it's terrible yeah and yeah her body has still never been found so not sure not sure what happened there what the story behind that is but but oh robert well on a lighter note (laughs) yeah um so my classless lyric criminal today is um, an ATM thief. So <laughs> this one is like it's less than epic. Um, so when two aspiring criminals attempted to open an ATM machine with a blowtorch, they suddenly understood the big mistake they had made. Uh, they successfully melted through the heavy metal frame surrounding all the important cash and were inches away from success. However, they reached a pile of papers, notes that they were after, and mistakenly set the entire pile of money on fire, <laughs> leaving nothing but the criminal record. Oh my gosh, I love this. <laughs> How does, you know, that would happen to me if I tried to do that. <laughs> that would happen to me. <laughs> um, These people. <laughs> so... Yeah, that's my classy story. Um, Classy folks. 
All right, I know you people are sitting on the edge of your seats waiting for that trivia question. So, in Pet Cemetery, the 1989, what type of vehicle hits Gage Freed on the highway near the family house? I'm zipping my lips. <laughs> I'm zipping my lips. I'm not going to ruin any more. <laughs> we're, we're not going to hold that against you anymore. You're, you're out of jail. Oh, good. I'm glad. I'm glad I, I made it out, guys. I promise. I, I learned my lesson. So, in Pet Cemetery, 1989, what type of vehicle hits Gage Creed on the highway near the family house? So, send it. Email, Instagram, Facebook. Let us know what you think. And earn your bragging rights. Get those in, peeps. We'll sh give you a shout-out in the beginning of next episode. So... Um, don't forget, again, get your tickets in for the Mother's Day basket. Treat your mama to something nice. Hey, you could win a basket from us for $1 and give it to mama for Mother's Day. Yeah, a $1 Mother's Day gift, I mean, and it's going to be good. So, really can't beat that. Right? Get those in, people. You're not going to miss the dollar. No. And the joy that it'll bring to your mother's face, or your face, you know, if you want to keep it. For Maybe yourself. you're a mother and it's a yeah. dog gift. Yeah. Uh huh. Exactly. Maybe you're a dog mom and you know, or a kitty cat mom. Yeah. Or a fish mom. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna get a hat that says chinchilla <laughs> mom. You know, how there's like clothes that say like dog mom. I'm gonna get a hat that says fish mom. Even though I don't have a fish, but you know, I used to. <laughs> oh my god, I will die if you show up one day. <laughs> fish mom. <laughs> sticking around um and yeah thanks for listening we'll check you guys uh next week with a whole other episode can't wait see you then we's got to go stay creepy bye bye <laughs>